Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hello, Katrina. I'm well. Wow, what nice topics and title and everything. You've decorated the place really nicely. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I didn't. I think engineering is just only kind of accurate, but there's not really. I tried imaging or, you know, but there's not too many words that that are more accurate. Right. I guess you have to engineer any idea that, um, yeah, good choices. Yeah, well, if anyone has better suggestions, please, please raise your hand. She had in the chat. Hi, Brian. Nice to see you. Hi, Sean. Maura, how are you today? Happy Friday, everyone. I hope you're enjoying your Friday. Have you been enjoying your Friday? Yeah, actually, it was pretty good. So I've been remotely babysitting my parents. <laughs> Their flight got canceled at last minute to Portugal yesterday. And uh, they, they, they don't have a car there. So they decided to bring their smart to Portugal from Germany. Their what? <laughs> so they drove all the way. Bring their what? Bring the smart car, you know. Oh to Portugal from Germany since they canceled the flight. So they called me, oh, we will just drive. I said, you're not, you know, we used to do it like three times a year, you know, drive from Germany to Portugal. Hi, Will, how are you? Welcome, welcome. I'm sharing my parents' story. <laughs> no well, problem, how's waiting. it going, guys? Hi, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. Good. This is a fun story. What a nice drive. Well, so in France, the flights that super, the people that supervise the, the airspace, they are on strike and they canceled my parents' flights from Germany to Portugal. You know, my family is half Germany, half Portugal. And so my parents decided to just take the second car and leave it in Portugal, which is a smart, a smart car, those tiny cars. And they're not young anymore. We used to do it two to three times a year to drive down to Portugal. So we would have a car with a lot of stuff packed, but you know, they are not young anymore. They haven't been doing this for like 20 years. So I was very worried. So I was on the phone with them all the time to keep them awake and and check them check up on them so that's what i've been doing the last two days basically your helicopter daughtering yes <laughs> <laughs> well <laughs> yeah yes Yes, Brian, I know, right? And a smart on top of it, I know. I don't think they've ever driven a tiny car like that. 
uh, to Portugal. <laughs> I don't know if anyone has done that, but yeah, I know. Yeah. Anyhow, they arrived, they are fine, had dinner at 3 a.m. in the morning, and they'll go now and sleep, hopefully. <laughs> Wait, so there are they in Portugal or they're still in France? No, now they're in Portugal. They just arrived. They, they, they went yesterday. Mm-hmm. So they took like 30 hours with, with stops and stuff. Amazing. So. And they're still speaking. Yes. In yeah, my father is now 70. He turned uh, 70 this year. So, gosh, you know. Power to him. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize they'd been with you in New York this whole time since the summer. Oh, no, no. They, 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 under, they were in Germany. They, oh, yeah, yeah. They they drove from Germany to Portugal in a smart, like, yeah. They are still working. My father, he asked for an exemption to still teach science. He's a science high school teacher. Oh, no way. That's great. Yeah. He, he didn't want to really stop. He, like, when he was young, I was always saying, ah, I'm looking forward to not work anymore. But now that it's time to stop working, he he writes letters to continue working, to be allowed to continue working, not full time, but yeah. So yeah, I think it's the last year they allow it this year when he's 70. I don't think like next year they will allow it unless they have real, um, teacher shortage like here in the u.s they have the same issue right the absolutely i it's funny i i cannot imagine a scenario where you would want to push a teacher out the door <laughs> you want to try to keep them for as long as possible yeah i agree and he worked through most of the COVIDs. he was allowed to never go in but he went in anyways with mask and everything and glad and you know vaccinated and everything but mm-hmm. um yeah yeah it's funny how you always talked <laughs> fantasized about not working anymore and now he could stop <laughs> he doesn't want to stop so anyways he found the right career that's really sweet yeah he knows so much that I forgot, you know, he mostly teaches physics and chemistry and stuff like that. And yeah, it's, it's funny how much I forgot, you know, that I didn't use anymore and he doesn't. So well, I don't really think we're supposed to remember certain things, you know, that's, that's formulas and and that I mean, and if we use them, then they become part of our knowledge base. But otherwise, isn't it just great to look things up? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Oh, it's already time. Look, we chatted the 10 minutes away. So thank you, Will, for coming. And um, I think we can slowly start. People will come in, uh, keep coming in, but um, I think we can just go ahead and uh, start with the introduction sure. and go from there. So welcome everyone to Science Society here today. And of course, a special welcome to you. Um, 
And yeah, as I said before we start, let's um, introduce you to our audience. So uh, Dr. William Gauthier, he's a MD-PhD instructor in pediatric electrophysiology. And he's um, at the Lucille Parker Children's Hospital in Stanford University Medical Center. And um, he did his, um, he got his um, board certification for as a medical doctor in uh, 2020 and um, his medical education before at Stanford University School of Medicine in 2013. Um, and he did his PhD also at Stanford University of School of Medicine. Um, and then he did his residency at the Boston Children's Hospital, a uh, pediatric residency. Um, and he did a fellowship then later on at Stanford University, um, pediatric cardiology. Um, and um, yeah, where he is now. And his clinical focus um, is in pediatric cardiology, electrophysiology, and inherited arrhythmias. And um, he is also a member of the Cardiovascular Institute and Maternal and Child Health Research Institute. Um, and it's such an honor to have you here today. And uh, before we usually start, um, Victoria, ask a couple of interview questions, if that's okay with you, Will. Thank Absolutely. you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That was wonderful to hear all that information and um, also interesting to hear about the arrhythmias. My firstborn um, had an arrhythmia which disappeared upon birth, but it was sure an exciting ride for a while. And um, that is right in our wheelhouse. I'm, yeah, so I'm just, you don't all often hear about that, but it's really amazing to hear. Yeah, we were so prepared for all kinds of technology and, um, you know, labor. As the doctor said, labor thankfully cured 99%, 99.9% of, of arrhythmias, and that was the case here. So thank you for the work that you do. I can attest to how, um, you know, desperately it's needed. So. Yes, so as Katarina says, Science Society is so happy to welcome you here, Will. We're very grateful that you've joined us and will present your work. And and what I would like to ask you, because we would we're interested in, in people and people who are interested in science and people who are working in science as well and increasing exposure and ameliorating barriers. And so what my question is, is if you think back in your life, um, perhaps part of your growing up or maybe a class or a relative or an event that caught your interest in science and may have influenced you to, to really form a connection to science? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, Victoria. Thank you. Um, you know, interestingly, I have um, a bit of a, a, not crooked, it's a pretty negative term, but like a, a very roundabout way of getting to where I am today. So. Um, I was actually born, raised in Canada originally on the French side on the East Coast. Um, 
And um, I actually trained as a professional musician. So uh, I was studying classical music in the Conservatory of McGill uh, in Montreal. Um, and it was actually only through volunteering at a pediatrics hospital um, in my spare time that I started becoming really passionate about uh, medicine. Um, I got really taken by, I, I just really enjoyed the patient population. But um, what I quickly realized is that I, I, I really felt the desire to do more um, than just kind of be there to help support them through a procedure or whatever. Um, and so that what that's what really kind of started me on my quest. And so I ended up uh, going back and doing or repeating an undergrad now in science uh, to be able to get the qualifications to be able to go into medicine. And it was um, actually uh, during that undergrad at McGill uh, University in biology um, that I um, equally fell in love with uh, research. Um, and so I just did that to, to be honest, uh, just to kind of make some money on the side and um, work in a science lab during the summers in between uh, my years and um, quickly just became um, uh, really uh, passionate about it, um, large, uh, in large part due to some really incredible mentors early on. Um, and then I just caught the bug. And so then I realized that uh, I really didn't want to give up either one, uh, either the medicine or research. And so I decided to put them together uh, and, and then uh, kind of started my whole trail going into MD, PhD and, uh, and uh, kind of crafting a, a career around being a physician scientist. That's so fascinating. It's, it sounds like you're really, um, you're attuned to what your personal desires are and you're, you have, you know, you have an ear and you follow your ideas and see where they lead you. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, it was a tough decision. I have to say, I mean, I think that, um, uh, that, you know, when you're in the thick of it, whatever your career is, uh, you know, I was, there was a lot of pressure, uh, for me to stay into music. Um, you know, I was at the end of my training, um, uh, you know, all of your professors and everybody has invested a lot of time uh, and effort into you uh, for that particular career. And so um, I guess if I, if I can say anything useful <laughs> um, during this time is um, is really to periodically check in with yourself and uh, have some introspection to really question, are you really passionate about what you're doing? Do you really truly love it? Is there nothing else in the world that you would rather be doing? Um, or are you just good at it and are people motivating you? And I, sometimes it can be really challenging too, in the sense that I love music and I miss it terribly. Um, but I knew that there was, uh, the connection that I had uh, with, uh, with patients and the connection that I kind of wanted to have with science and medicine, um, was clearly outstripping, uh, the music. And so I think that, um, Sometimes those conversations are tough, but I'm very, very glad that I kind of forced myself to kind of sit down and uh, take some time and think about it. So it sounds like your connections with patients were part of that motivation and, and part of what um, was the draw. 100%. And it's, yeah, it's so, it's so powerful to hear, to hear your story and because it's how often are we you know it's almost like walking away from an uh, you know an engagement when you realize oops this isn't the right one you know and and you've already had the bridal shower and the you know or the bachelor party whatever and and um there are people there who have put um you know have supported you and money and and that and so this is your you know your engagement with music and yeah, yet yeah 
I'm smiling, <laughs> Victoria, just because that is actually in all of these years, I've never had an analogy. And that's like the perfect analogy because you really do feel like you're almost walking down the aisle, uh, you know, looking for jobs. You're, you know, you're fully committed. That's actually a perfect analogy. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm listening and, and I'm, I'm thinking how useful this is to hear somebody who has to make a tough decision like that, where it's something, as you said, you're good at it and you have so much invested and yet you hear this voice inside of you that's pulling you another way. And not only did you follow that, but you you combined medicine with your research and have created this new field that that you're working on. So, mm. It's um, yeah. It's just it's it's an um, it's an important path for for all of us to observe and and learn from. And so, can you bring us through a series of, of events, maybe um, giant steps up to from where we left off up to the work that you are about to present with us today? Absolutely. So yeah. So. Um... Uh, went into science, um, and actually, my parents were from the U.S., and so they, um, I had the great fortune to be able to then, as a dual citizen, to be able to apply to MBP PhD programs in the U.S., and so I did so. Um, I went out to, came out actually here to Stanford to do my MD PhD, um, and I did my PhD in developmental biology. Uh, really knew it, knowing that I was I wanted to go into pediatrics and where a lot of the disease processes in uh, kiddos really centers around development um, and changes in development that happen that ultimately lead to an underlying disease. Um, I once I finished my MD PhD, I went to Boston Children's for residency training um, and continue on with pediatrics with a fast track uh, into cardiology, where I came back to Stanford to do my cardiology fellowship. Um, and electrophysiology as well. Um, and the fast track aspect was lopping off a couple of years to be able to get back into the lab as effectively as quickly as possible. And so I did that and I did my, um, uh, you know, I started, uh, I did a postdoc here before then coming out um, and uh, becoming an instructor as I am now. And my lab will start off in January here at Stanford. So I'm very excited about that. Um, but um, in terms of this project, uh, really where kind of this spawned from was, it was actually one of my first days of fellowship, cardiology fellowship uh, in, uh, at Stanford, where I went around and just asked a whole bunch of the attending physicians um, what were uh, some of the unmet medical needs that they've seen over the years or decades of their lives. Um, and um, knowing full well that I was about to, you know, in a couple of years would head off to the lab and try to address some of these questions. And so I thought that the, it was a lesson that I learned very early on uh, was uh, to not reinvent the wheel and to go straight to the source and find out what the true issues are. And so um, one issue that kept coming up over and over again uh, from multiple physicians was we have these children um, with uh, congenital heart disease. So they're born with, um, you know, for best analogy is kind of the plumbing is, uh, is altered uh, in these hearts. Um, and so um, a lot of them end up needing to have open heart surgery. Um, so they go down, they get their surgery. Um, and when they come up, uh, unfortunately, uh, a, a, a subset of these patients uh, will Receive, end up having accidental damage to effectively the wiring system of the heart. Um, so I, I think um, Dr. Cunha had thrown up some slides uh, of mine, but um, uh, if 
there's a visual if you guys want, but in on uh, slide four, um, there's just kind of an image of this, what we call the cardiac conduction system. So this is the, effectively the electrical wiring of the heart, and uh, it is what allows the electricity to pass through the heart um, and uh, what allows for the heart to have a coordinated heartbeat. And so what happens is that when you have these open heart surgeries, the surgeons who are just absolutely phenomenal uh, will go in there, repair what needs to be repaired. But um, the kicker is if you go to the next slide, um, what they don't see is this wiring system. And that is because this wiring system is invisible to the naked eye. And, um, and so, you know, they need to do what they need to do. But unfortunately, when, as they're putting in their sutures or they're making their incisions, um, you're effectively going in pretty blind as to where these, this conduction system is. And so as a result, um, anywhere from 4 to 16%, up to 4 to 16% of some of the more complex heart like uh, heart surgeries that we that are performed on our kiddos um, end up with accidental damage to this wiring system. And so when I was asking around to a whole bunch of physicians, I um, uh, that was one theme that kept coming back up uh, was if you could help the surgeons see where this conduction system is, you might actually have a chance of helping them prevent um, uh, it from being damaged accidentally. So um, I thought that was a, a very worthy cause, um, especially as an electrophysiologist, where as a clinician, um, that conduction system is the focus uh, of my life, um, that I thought that th this was a great translational project um, and something I wanted to tackle. Um, and so um, just to kind of round out, this is not a problem um, only for kids, but also uh, similarly a problem for adults. So a lot of the heart, major heart structures um, in, the, um, in the heart, so namely the heart valves, um, uh, some of the tissue, a lot of where a lot of this congenital and adult disease is, lies right around where the conduction system is. And so uh, when um, a person receives these repairs, similarly between kids and adults, um, they have the risk of damaging this conduction system. Um, as a result, um, there are quite a bit of increased costs and longer hospital stays. Um, so on average in the U.S., for instance, a kiddo that has uh, their conduction system damaged um, will often wait 10 days um, in the intensive care unit as we wait to see if it comes back. They'll wait 10 days on average, which is an enormous cost to society at large and um, obviously, a huge impact um, personally for the, the family and for the child as well. Um, damage to the conduction system uh, has a, a high association with uh, morbidity and mortality, so um, worse outcomes as a result. Um, and that's because you need your conduction system uh, working fully for the heart to be functioning well. Um, and unfortunately, actually, the majority of patients end up needing to get uh, an artificial pacemaker. So they, they actually get a device uh, implanted into them to be able to act as a surrogate for this wiring system. So um, that's a long way to say that this is, uh, it, again, it was a, a worthy, I think, in my opinion, unmet medical need. So um, on the next slide, um, in, on slide six, uh, effectively shows kind of a picture of um, the underlying technology that I came up with. And so uh, I affectionately called this uh, my tech uh, Illuminode. So illuminate, uh, illuminate and the nodes, uh, the conduction system is uh, typically found, uh, or major portions are found as nodes, hence the Illuminode. 
Um, but effectively what it is, um, is that this is a um, antibody uh, that is conjugated to a near-infrared dye. I'll try to keep it, I know the audience is pretty broad, so I'll try to keep it uh, broad, but feel free if anybody has a question about specifics uh, or uh, more broad terms, uh, feel free to um, throw something in the chat and just ask away. Um, but so this antibody uh, is hooked up, I hooked it up to uh, a dye, um, and that antibody, importantly, is an, an antibody that recognizes specifically the cells of the conduction system. Um, that's a whole other story of how we got there and how we found that, but uh, I'll leave it at that. And so the idea um, is uh, kind of my vision from the beginning was that uh, patients would receive a single injection of this antibody uh, dye uh, solution uh, before their surgery, and that would allow the surgeons to visualize the conduction system in real time with the help of a camera, and thereby hopefully help reduce the chances of accidental damage. Um, and so all this work was, uh, we just recently published actually the official um, paper, the preprint came out this past month and the official will come out in a day or two. So uh, it'll be hot off the press. Um, but so um, on the next slide, you can see just some, you know, I, I just wanted to touch on some kind of broad overview stuff here, but uh, Illuminode, um, we did some preliminary experiments in mice um, that are detailed uh, much more extensively in this paper. but. Um, uh, the Illuminode, after a single injection into mice, we showed that while if you injected uh, the same dye hooked up to an antibody that was not specific to any one cell type in particular, uh, you saw no signal within the heart. But if you injected the, the same mice with, again, the same dye, but now hooked up to the antibody that's directed against these cells uh, within the wiring system of the heart, uh, we now get uh, actual signal within the heart as we expected and hoped for. Um, now, if uh, you guys are visualizing stuff on page uh, seven, you can see that the signal is pretty coarse and it's pretty um, uh, nonspecific. Um, and so uh, in part, that is because there, this was a system that we initially used to kind of screen to see if this would work. Um, but it's not made for these tiny little dime-sized hearts, very, very small mouse hearts. So instead, we turned to a technology actually that was uh, initiated here at Stanford um, by actually the president of Stanford, uh, Dr. Mark Tessier-Levine, uh, who's an incredible scientist, um, who uh, figured out this a technique called iDisco. It's kind of a fun name for effectively a technique where what it comes down to is you can take any solid organ and use um, chemicals, so organic solvents, to be able to strip away all of the fat um, and all of the, the, the effectively, the elements that make up a, a, like a, an organ um, opaque so that you can't see through it. So once you actually finish the processing of your organ, you can actually see straight through it. Um, but the beautiful thing about it is that it maintains all of the cells as is and all the proteins as is. And so what you can see there is you can now, with a much higher resolution, you can see the signal of what, whatever you're looking for. And what I'm showing on... Um, on slide eight is everything you see in gold um, is that Illuminode signal. And so um, we were ecstatic to see that it was lighting up with incredibly high resolution the entirety of the entire wiring system that we were seeing for the first time in a whole organ. So that was exciting to see. Um, but moving on to the next slide, the, the real kind of um, test here 
was we wanted to mimic what our surgeons uh, were doing um, in real life. So what we did was we effectively repeated the experiment where a mouse got a single injection of this aluminode solution. And then two days later, um, we recapitulated an open heart surgery effectively um, in these mice. And we imaged to see, does the signal show up as we would expect? And lo and behold, we were very pleased to see that that was indeed the case. And so we were excited to see that it was the conduction system that lit up. Uh, so you can see here in green, all these structures here in green, I won't bother kind of pointing them out, but um, suffice it to say that everything we expected to light up, lit up. Um, and we were able to show on the next slide, we were able to show um, that the um, staining that we were seeing or the, the signal that we were seeing truly was specific, ultra specific at the cellular level to just the uh, wiring cells. And so we were able to show that in actual sliced uh, sections of the heart. Um, we were able to do basic, what we call dosage and time course analyses to find out what was the optimal, how much was the optimal amount of aluminode to put into uh, a given uh, uh, mouse. And even more importantly than that, uh, what we did is we did a lot of safety um, assays. So uh, even injecting far more than we needed to get a good signal, um, we tested to make sure that that wiring system of the heart was not affected by delivering that dye. And we were very pleased to see that um, nothing seemed to be perturbed, uh, even at super maximal dosing. Now, um, one really kind of important feature um, that I've learned uh, through academia is, um, you know, there's a quintessential, and I'm sure this has come up um, in the Science, science Society uh, previously, but um, there's what we call the, the valley of death uh, when it comes to trying to get your basic science ideas into humans, um, and into viable translational uh, medicine. And so um, there are a lot of reasons why these ideas, some great ideas within kind of the academic setting within universities end up failing and never making their way uh, into humans. And so one reason is um, because the, you know, the reagents that you're using and the tools that you're using um, can't be put into a human. And so for instance, the antibody that we're using was a commercial antibody. Um, derived in an animal. And so um, that was one thing that you can't just put into a human, otherwise you'll have kind of an, an immune reaction or an allergic reaction. So to get around this, and with the goal of really trying to get this into humans, we created um, our own um, monoclonal or um, a specific antibody um, to these cells um, that was fully human. And so um, I won't get into the details, but effectively we went through this whole process. It took a long time, about a year, uh, to be able to screen through and, uh, and a lot of money to be able to come up with these antibodies, these candidates. Um, we ultimately set it all in a couple that worked brilliantly. So they worked just as well as the uh, original antibody that we used, um, but they're set and made so that um, they can be received in humans, which is exciting. Um, so as kind of like a, a broad overview, um, what we were able to do with Illuminode is try to address this unmet medical need. And that need was um, when the surgeons go in um, and they repair, they're doing their incredible repairs of um, pediatric as well as adult um, heart uh, repairs, 
Um, unfortunately, a subset of these uh, repairs will get complicated with an accidental damage to the wiring of the heart. And so to get around this, uh, we created this aluminode, um, so this antibody dye uh, conjugate, um, where after a single injection, at least in mice, we've been able to show so far, um, kind of on every level, from tissue, tissue sections all the way to live imaging, uh, that we're able to light up the conduction system in a really sensitive and specific and, most importantly, safe way. pause there maybe if there are any questions um there was just a couple more slides that i was going to go over or, or concepts that i was going to talk about for the paper but if there was any anybody that had a question so yeah just maybe uh like in general that the audience understands it really well um so um this dye illuminates the ccs uh, constantly, right? Or is it dependent on activity um, of, yeah, is it activity dependent? Does it change basically color or or not? That's a, that's a wonderful question, Katarina. Um, so the, um, so there are absolutely, um, the simple answer is that it is always on. Um, it eventually gets turned over. So we f I found that after about four days, the, the signal starts weakening and eventually it goes away. Um, so it hangs around, uh, but it's always, it's just constant. It's constantly emitting as long as you kind of excite that dye with a, with a light. Um, and so, but there are certainly, um, there's certainly value in having a, a responsive. Uh, so whether it's uh, voltage, uh, like depolarization or calcium fluxes, uh, but that is not this. Um, I, I, the one, there are technical reasons for that, and two, um, I thought that it was much more important for the surgeons um, to be able to see it uh, consistently, and so that they didn't have to wait for heartbeats, um, so that it wouldn't interrupt their flow. Um, on top of that, we actually do something um, in the or the surgeons uh, do something called cardioplegia, where to be able to get a good um, kind of still heart. They actually inject it with a high uh, potassium solution to be able to actually have the heart, what we call fibrillate, or just uh, stop the regular beating. And so as a result, um, if it was uh, activity dependent, the signal, then actually the signal would go away. And so that was another reason why I thought it was really important for me to have the signal just be on at all times. But that was a, that's a brilliant question. Yeah, that's perfect. Thank you. So I can, I can keep moving a bit. Um, so a couple things. So one of the um, um, strengths um, here at Stanford uh, is, well, I guess, so I'll first talk about more kind of like the other practical aspects. So this is obviously a very kind of specific unmet medical need uh, in trying to see the conduction system. Now, there are a lot of other issues that we as electrophysiologists or heart rhythm doctors that we deal with. And um, the primary thing that we deal with are actually heart rhythm problems. So what happens when there is a problem with the conduction system or with the rhythm of the rest of the heart? And so in slide 16, I just highlighted kind of it's a picture of a heart with all the individual components of the conduction system uh, laid out. And then in red around it, I just list off a whole bunch of arrhythmias or heart rhythm disorders um, that are associated with each component. 
And so as a clinician, um, where my mind went also was, okay, well, we can bring a dye uh, to these conduction system parts, but what about the possibility of potentially bringing things like drugs or other um, forms of cargo to those cells uh, to be able to help them if they are disordered for whatever reason, uh, whether it's age-related or uh, they were damaged, um, et cetera. And so um, what I realized in thinking this also is that because each one of these components of the conduction system or the wiring are actually different from each other, and they have different diseases associated with them, I realized that it was gonna be important for me to not just have this one antibody that could then target the entire conduction system, but that it could potentially be useful for the field for me to be able to figure out different markers that I could use um, uh, found on each one of these individual components of the wiring system that could be targeted in a similar manner to be able to then uh, generate new antibodies against any one of these individual components. So I won't get into the nitty gritty because I, I think it's uh, beyond the scope of the kind of the broad audience here, but um, effectively um, what I did was I performed what we call single cell RNA sequencing um, from all the, the individual cells from each one of these major components of the car conduction system. And effectively, what I asked was, I asked, what are the genes, the proteins that ultimately create the proteins that are unique to each one of these individual components of the conduction system? And more importantly, of all of those unique genes, which are those that actually encode for a protein that sits on the outside of the cell? And the reason I asked that was because if I was going to generate an antibody, like if you have the ability to see this slide on 17, on the top right, I just have a little illustration of what I mean. So there is a little cell that I'm calling the SA node or SAN. And um, you can see these little um, purple proteins that are sticking out, out of the cell. And so they're visible, that those proteins on the outside make uh, that uh, cell visible if you uh, to the surrounding blood. And so the idea there is that if there's a unique protein, like that purple protein there, that are specific to, for instance, the SA node or the SAN, then you have the ability to then use an antibody to recognize that unique protein and then target whatever cargo you want to it. So I set about um, doing this, and um, on the next slide, um, was just kind of a representation that I found a whole bunch of genes, again, that encode these proteins um, that were specific to each individual component or all of them together. And so I went about uh, in this same paper then to then prove in each individual gene um, that they do, in fact, um, uh, are, they're specifically expressed in each one of these individual ones. Um, and then I went on to make an antibody against uh, a new antibody against a new one of these proteins and prove that that worked as well if you injected into mice. So kind of big broad concept summary here is um, that we use this ability to kind of target those unique proteins on the outside of these cells to be able to bring either things like dyes to help light it up. Um, or for the future, um, try to bring things, alternative forms of cargo, whether it be drugs or other types of cargos that we could use to try to therapeutically treat some of the diseases that um, we see on a day-to-day -day basis.
So that's kind of the the long and short of what that paper is about. Um, and if anybody has any questions, I'm glad to answer them. Thank you. I mean, this is really amazing um, research, and um, you know that the the really great thing. I know it takes a long time to do an MD PhD. My brother also did one, but you actually know what patients need and um researchers like me are far away from that so and then coming up with uh, solutions like this that are pretty and useful <laughs> is uh is quite very impressive and thank you for sharing that with us here today and the delivery of of cargo then um is even you know even you know it's such an additional you say it's an additional but it's it's really very important because that's the issue right if we give like some potassium uh, pump or um, voltage dependent receptor um, drug we target that everywhere but if we can be so precise even with focusing on different cell types anywhere that's really where we need to be so that that's really impressive and uh thank you for sharing that with us of course yeah no i think I, obviously easier said than done um, but it's something that i'm very actively pursuing right now and i think that um uh it is um I think, yeah, I think the opportunity is tremendous. And so I think that it is worthy of, uh, of you know, pursuing and trying to, to get to work. So we'll see, we'll see. But yeah, no, in terms of, in terms of um, knowing, um, I, I think both sides, I think that there's a, typically a, a huge schism uh, between the medical and the research side. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, communication is everything um you know i think that the physicians like i did you know like i even as a a physician myself when i started my fellowship the first thing i did i recognized that i was not a cardiologist yet so the first thing that i did was ask all of the cardiologists around me what are the problems that you're seeing like what have you seen over the past five ten years what are what are the issues or what do you think that the issues are going to be five ten years down the line and i think that that's so crucial and then similarly on the flip side I think it's so important for, uh, and what I try to really uh, preach to my uh, trainees, my clinical trainees, is um, I try to introduce them to basic scientists. I try to introduce them to PhDs because, um, you know, on, on the flip side, while they have might have some great ideas as to, you know, what a particular need is uh, in the medical world, um, often they will have no clue how to address that scientifically. Um, and so I really encourage them to do the exact opposite is to go reach out to, um, to, uh, to scientists and ask them, look, I have this great idea, you know, um, what do you think about, you know, how, do, how would you solve this? And so I think it really just comes down to, I think both parties have such an important role to play um, that um, we just need to be speaking more and more to each other. And I, I think it's, it can create a really beautiful synergy. Yeah, thank you uh, for saying that. Um, I wanted, you know, to get to the science questions, but uh, I, because 
you know, Joyce runs a few med tech rooms with our friend Susie from Sweden, if I'm not saying it wrong, Joyce. Um, and we discussed, uh, or they discussed there, and I sometimes go there, all kinds of bigger scale, like public health problems we have and what companies or people kind of are trying to solve these problems. And what I see very often is we actually have a lot of solutions for a lot of problems. But then we don't have people that put these together uh, to implement them. Maybe people that are on the lawmaking and organizing in hospital and so on don't have the knowledge from those more tech people or med tech people or biotech people what they are doing and then the other way around the people that are doing this don't know enough uh, how to implement them practically i think we have a lot of stuff we just need people to bring them together so it's really great that you encourage this cross um yeah, cross-disciplinary uh, approach, because I think we we need way more of that. We could solve so many things already. Um, well, anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, I think that's right on the nose. I mean, I think, I, I, look, I'm incredibly fortunate to be at an institution like this. I think that, um, so one, one of the reasons, like on the slides, you, you'll see just like some of the, the funding agencies, but there's one called Spark. Um, and I would uh, heavily um, uh, endorse people checking this out. Uh, so Spark is a actually started at Stanford. So this is a translational uh, research group that started um, here, and it's now I think there are over sixty, I believe, like six zero uh, Sparks around the world. Um, so these are all based at academic institutions um, with the idea of exactly that. Catalina um, is like trying to bring together. Um, all of the expertise that you need for translational medicine, and that includes patent lawyers, uh, you know, VCs, industry people, um, including in addition to all the scientists, um, and getting them together um, and helping them to kind of lift off. So Spark, um, it's head up by uh, Dar uh, Dr. Daria Mokley Rosen and uh, Dr. Kevin Grimes. They're just outstanding. They're incredible human beings and scientists and and. Uh, um, just they're just incredible and so they started this um and this to be honest this project was very very early on with some early preliminary data uh that was very promising and um spark uh, really was the the program that let me um kind of uh, take off with this project so they uh you know they they had internal grants um as most of the the spark programs do around the world um and so i applied for that and i won one of the grants and um, the really special thing, um, really kind of the most important thing was uh, they have weekly meetings. Um, and so you get to be at a meeting there where you present uh, project updates um, and you have in the room with you, you have, um, again, all these people that need to be there to be able to share that knowledge of, you know, patent lawyers. And always something would come up where it'd be, it would be somebody else from a different perspective that you as a scientist would never think about. Um, and so it really helped accelerate uh, the process tremendously. So the one, I guess, after having said all of that, the one thing I would say is um, if anybody on the call is uh, invested in uh, translational medicine or has ideas that they want to kind of take there, 
Um, the key is do try not to, if you can, uh, reinvent the wheel and really just talk, like consult, 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 like find people, whether it's if you're on the science side, find physicians, talk to tons of physicians to find out if your idea is great and works at the get go. And then after that, if you're if the project is moving along and you're thinking about, you know, you actually would like to license this or get a patent on it. Talk to people who have experience with it so that you're not trying to do it all yourself. Otherwise, uh, it's, it's just so challenging to, to get through all of those hurdles by yourself. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that um, Spark was such a great opportunity for you and, and for many other people. I heard about it. So, yeah, I'm really glad that, um, yeah, that it exists. And I hope they, uh, yeah. And yeah, everyone check it out. Um, it's a great organization. And uh, yeah, I hope they will help you way more in the future um, because yeah, I think your work is really important. And um, yeah, the, in my family, we have Bugada syndrome, for example, but I know there are a lot more families out there that, uh, that will benefit from this research. So uh, please, uh, if you have questions, I took some time, so I will ask again later on. So Dr. Shah, please go ahead. Yeah, thank you so much, Will. That was a wonderful work that you shared with us. And uh, because you just talked about the cargo, uh, I mean, out of curiosity, I was just wondering to ask you about the, I mean, hy hypoxic situation and uh, because you talk about the nanoparticles and we know that we have some of the oxygen nanobubbles in the same time uh, also we have a wavelength that you just mentioned as part of your research uh, i was just wondering to ask you uh, did you i mean had any kind of investigation through that pattern because we have a tumor therapy that they are using the same technique somehow and I was wondering if you have further information that you can share with us. Uh, great, thank you uh, for the question. And so just to be clear, so the uh, the question was regarding... Um, hypoxic? Hy hypoxic situation, yeah, yeah? Hy hypoxia? If there is hypoxia and... Yes. Or whether this induces a hypoxia. Yes, it can be. I mean, to me, the way that you just explained about, I can think about the crosstalk and, the, for example, we need the pi-pi interaction and all of those things, as well as the, the you define the nanometer here as part of your research. I was just wondering, did you have the conversation if the situation is a hypoxic, what's going to happen or how you can use your research in that direction? Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, so one thing is that, um, so for, in terms of a, like a my, myocardial infar infarction and the setting of hypoxia um, to the heart, um, that, I mean, there certainly potentially could be. I think that the one uh, value in this, uh, you know, certainly if we were to deliver, you'd have to think about the cargo that you would want to deliver. Um, a couple caveats. Um, one major one is the fact that um, this is really targeting the, the wiring of the, the heart, and it's actually a, a small subset of the heart cells, and they're very specific cells in the, in the heart, um, and not the typical structures that get infarcted. Um, and so probably not the, the kind of the major target. The other thing is that to be able to deliver your, um, your antibody, 
um, with whatever cargo that you want, this, there at least needs to be a cell that's still alive uh, and not dead. Um, so uh, that would be the other problem is that if, it, the, if there's a, a moment of infarction um, and the cell dies, then it wouldn't be able to be recognized. But theoretically, what you could do is that, if, for instance, like the AV node, uh, which is the kind of middle part of the conduction system that is really, really crucial, um, if that gets um, hypoxia uh, or hypoxemia, um, and so there's not enough oxygen because of a heart attack, for instance, um, you theoretically could um, deliver, use your antibody to deliver um, whatever car you wanted to do to try to spare the rest of the cells that are still remaining. Um, so, so do you think that you, in a, I mean, along, along with that, you might use the, for example, RBC metalloprotein beside that because there is some researchers out there that they are using this affinity as well beside just transferring the nanoparticle? Um, it could, yeah. I'm, I'm actually not familiar with the with that research, so um, I can't really speak to it. Um, yeah. Thank you. Uh, Joyce, Amy, Denise, yeah. Amy, you had a question? <clears throat> yeah, good evening, everyone. Um, <clears throat> that's a great research, uh, Mr. Whale. I don't know if you... Uh, I do. I do have a question. Uh, that injected dye does it make the heart transparent, or does it uh, illuminates the the pathway? Just a question. Yeah, it's a great question. So yeah, so the um, uh, the transparency was entirely just for uh, the experiment of the mouse. So it definitely does not make it transparent. It light it lights up the the tissue. Um, and doesn't do anything to the rest of the tissue. So, because actually to make it transparent, you actually have to um, use effectively, effectively like a fixant, uh, formaldehyde, uh, to be able to fix the heart. And then you use very, very toxic, like you, you destroy the heart by doing that. Like you, you kill the heart. So obviously that would never be viable um, for humans. But thankfully for us, uh, we don't need to make it transparent. Um, is that the signal uh, that dye that gets delivered to the wiring system is bright enough um, that you don't um, uh, that it can actually penetrate through the um, even if it's underneath uh, some tissue. So that's great. So mainly, this is used for diagnostic purposes. Currently, yep. So that that's that's kind of like our original goal. Um, but what we're exploring now is what can else can we do uh, from a therapeutic perspective with this technology? Okay. Um, is it commercialized already or you're still in the experimental stage? It's still in the experimental phase. So we're, we're kind of shifting to, we're optimizing what we call our, our lead compound. And um, we are um, in uh, starting with large animals at this point uh, to be able to get the data necessary for the FDA to apply for uh, an IND to be able to get into clinical trials. So not yet, not humans yet. Okay, wonderful. I think your, your research and your experiment is very important. So thank you so Thanks much. Thanks so much, I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Denise, uh, Joyce, John, did you have a question? Please flash your mic and go ahead. Uh, hi, uh, 
I have a question actually very similar to Amy's. Uh, I'm wondering, you see, like, uh, because the uh, cardiac conduction system is uh, buried within the muscle and uh, mostly uh, actually with uh, in the luminal side of the uh, heart. So, uh, how, see, like, uh, how much, uh, see, uh, the, you, you see the light is very strong to penetrate through the muscle. So it actually can penetrate through the whole muscle wall, cardiac muscle wall? John, that's a brilliant question. So this is something that we are thought of when we started the experiment and also still need to kind of demonstrate in a larger heart, hence the rationale for getting to the larger animals, also for like safety perspective. Uh, we have to do that for the FDA. But um, the, uh, so this is a great question. So the... All, effectively, all of the conduction system is, like you said, it's on the luminal side. So it's on the inside. Uh, it's most closely to the surface on the inside of the heart. And that works in our favor uh, because when the surgeons perform the open heart surgeries um, that put the conduction system at risk, they actually have to open up. So they're always looking at the inside of the heart rather than the outside of the heart. So. Um, we had the advantage there of not having uh, so much depth of tissue above the wiring system to get through. Um, but one of the reasons I chose the near-infrared dye, that near dye, was because when you get out that far into the spectrum, uh, around 800 nanometers, the nice thing about it is that um, it's a little less bright, but it penetrates um, at a further distance, um, the signal. And so it can go up to um, 10 millimeters or a centimeter. And um, very conveniently for us, um, all of the conduction system is less than 10 millimeters in depth underneath uh, any tissue. So, um, you know, theoretically, it should work with no problem um, in larger animals. But again, it's something we absolutely have to test. Um, if we do run into problems where uh, it is not bright enough or it doesn't penetrate deep enough, we can go um, in other directions. So we can either um, go much further out than the 800. There are actually many new dyes that have come out in the past, um, you know, like five-ish years. Actually, a couple um, really uh, great groups here at Stanford that have come out with dyes out to 1600, even further than that, where the depth, um, you start getting even more and more depth. And then there's the opportunity also of layering on dyes. So instead of just effectively, I had about one to two dyes per antibody. You can also stack that up and actually put many, many, many more dyes onto your antibody to be able to enhance the signal to, to make it more bright. Um, so we're kind of, um, you know, it's a matter of just getting in, trying it in a much bigger heart, uh, human-sized heart, um, and uh, testing and just kind of um, troubleshooting around that. But great question. So your uh, you can uh, pass through the uh, uh, you can send the uh, detector uh, C head through a caster. Uh, is that detector the detected uh, head is so small? Uh, so okay, so great question. So the way that it is set up actually is. Um, um, there is a camera that hovers uh, a couple feet above um, the uh, the open chest, and that camera actually exists in open heart surgeries anyways. It's just there so that everybody can see whoever's in the the room, including the surgeon, 
um, they can that image the cameras there and it projects onto a really nice high res screen. And so it gives them a much bigger image of what they're um, performing the surgery on. Um, and so what's special about this camera is that it, it effectively emits light. You can't see it. It's not within the visible range, but it emits light to excite that dye. And then it also receives the emitted um, uh, light from the dye. And so it superimposes that signal onto the real-time camera or like the real-time image on the screen. And so um, it looks like a, it almost looks like a heat map as you're kind of moving around the heart, the signal moves with it. And so that's how the surgeon sees it, um, is you, you don't need like a small, like very small device or anything placed on the heart. Everything is, um, is kind of hands-free. And kind of like the, my dream scenario is, uh, I know people in places like WashU um, University are, are starting to, uh, have been working on this for a while now, where they have that camera effectively embedded into goggles that the surgeons wear. Um, so the idea is that they wouldn't even have to look at a camera. They could just see it directly through their goggles. But that's a little while off. Wow, that's amazing. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, thanks for everything you shared with us. Um, I was just wondering, I, I might have missed this because I have been in and out a little bit, but is this going to be helpful with conduction problems from a lot of different sources? I mean, I know you're pediatric, and so that may be a certain type of condition, but I think of things that are affecting older people and sometimes idiopathic conduction problems, atrial fibrillation, you know, so on and so on. Anyway, thanks. Great question, Joy. So um, I can't really talk about <laughs> um, some of the stuff that I'm actively doing right now, but suffice it to say that you are um, absolutely right that actually the vast majority of cardiac arrhythmias that I deal with, even as a pediatrician, uh, but more so uh, on the adult side, so the most common arrhythmias, things like atrial fibrillation and ventricular fibrillation, um, actually do not occur in the conduction cells. Um, and so um, there are, though, a host of things like sinus node dysfunction, heart block, um, and even forms of ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation that do come from the conduction system. So um, this technology that I talked about today would be kind of restricted to just the arrhythmias. And that's, again, with the caveat of saying, if we can successfully deliver um, appropriate cargo to be able to quell these, um, these um, conduction-related arrhythmias, would focus just on those arrhythmias and not the more common ones like atrial fibrillation or ventricular fibrillation. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, you you answered the question that I had. Um, I I was wondering if um, if you would just, for the sake of general like research, if you could. Um, give this to different groups of people and then maybe by the imaging find out characteristics of the heart that you could predict maybe cardiovascular health a longer term by imaging the system. Do, do you think that would make sense? I know it's probably not realistic to actually do that, but would that 
do you think that you could detect there something? Well, so, and that's actually, it touches on something really great, uh, Katerina. I think that it's something that fascinates me as somebody who's uh, by training a developmental biologist and just really fascinated on how kind of a lot of these developmental or congenital heart disease um, happen. So, um, although I don't think it necessarily has um, a tremendous value for, uh, in terms of understanding the anatomical variation of the conduction system, um, seeing how it changes between just like regular uh, folk without congenital heart disease in terms of their long time, long term prognosis, uh, uh, like prognosticating in terms of a life, a long, a long term uh, health goals. That I think that there is incredible value in understanding, in particular in congenital heart disease patients, um, how the conduction system is made because often. Even just like in the setting of, even if you just take surgery, for instance, what happens is that a lot of our kiddos um, are, um, so the, 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 like I said at the beginning, the plumbing of the heart um, is typically altered. So there's either a rotation to components of the heart, a flipping, um, there are holes, um, uh, all sorts of variation. And we current right now are the current, um, uh, way of going about it is that you effectively kind of guess based on where the major structures are, where this conduction system is. And so you would at the very least be able to understand um, where uh, it is. And so you take the guessing out of it, which is huge. Um, and then from my perspective as an electrophysiologist, they're also huge value. So we uh, go in, I spend part of my time doing what we call ablations, where we um, place lesions or burns on the inside of the heart to be able to get rid of arrhythmias. And so um, sometimes they originate within the conduction system and sometimes they originate outside of the conduction system. So um, one huge value for us would be we cannot see, even with our catheters, um, on the inside of the heart, um, we sometimes can't see all of the, the conduction system. And so to be able to visualize it there um, it would help us not only try to avoid those during these uh, burning um, or ablations, but it would also help us to understand sometimes the actual pathology behind their arrhythmia um, of how their wiring system is set up. And so from a health perspective that way, I think would be tremendously helpful. So that's something that I absolutely would like to, um, uh, to investigate. And just even from like the science nerd in me is I'm just fascinated to know what kind of variation there is in, in the population of just how is the wiring system kind of set up uh, from person to person. And we don't, we don't really know. Yeah, I agree. I'm very curious. You know, I, I used to, when I was, uh, postdoc at Stony Brook, I used to um, mentor students from the Simmons Foundation uh, that came. And one student, you know, in the end was like poster shares and stuff like that. And uh, one student um, shared that uh, defibrillators, for most people, the load um, is way too strong that they deliver and damage actually a lot of hearts get damaged and tissue um, and she was working on uh, using um, a lot of imaging data that is publicly available to basically um, see if she can generate a more precise defibrillator so that the idea was that in the end, every person has kind of 
their own heart passport or something and then you can calculate you know you have like in your health data how much if you would need a defibrillator how you know how much you would need for your specific heart so yeah from that perspective your imaging would probably make it even more precise um yeah, I think it would be a little different, though, because the defibrillator, the purpose is not so much for the actual wiring system, but it's to eliminate or terminate um, um, uh, abnormal fast rhythms that are coming in the rest of the heart. Uh, so typically the bottom chambers, the ventricles. Um, so it probably wouldn't um, change things too, too much um, in that scenario. But a, on, the, on the concept of devices, uh, one thing um, we actually, so we put in devices, um, whether it's a pacemaker or a defibrillator, and sometimes what we'll do is we, um, we actually try to screw, so it's always screwed on the inside of the heart um, in the right uh, ventricle, and so the right bottom chamber. Um, and there is um, something uh, that it's been around for the last several years called HIS bundle pacing. And so you actually try to screw in directly into the conduction system because they found actually that there's much better um, prognosis with that, is that by tapping in and trying to deliver electricity directly uh, when you're pacing the heart to the conduction system, that the heart likes it much better um, because it, it, uh, uh, the heart is used to receiving the electricity using the wiring system. So effectively, you're just trying to hijack um, the, the system and deliver it directly to the wiring. And so as a result, um, um, it, uh, it, it, there have been really promising results. And so one arena where this could absolutely help is lighting up the condition, the conduction system so that when, um, people are trying to screw directly into it, they can actually see their target. And so they can go straight for it and then screw it, screw it right in. Yeah, that's really interesting. Just one more question. So you, you talked about also using this as a delivery method so you know in my family uh, we have you know various family members that have these um, built-in defibrillators but they also have their risks right they sometimes could um, generate false um, you know false um, electricity delivery you have to exchange the batteries and stuff like that after a few years would there be a way to instead of using a defibrillator to have like um drug that's that is on hold basically and if needed that would be released with your antibodies would that be in the future maybe possible yeah that's a, a great question i think that um Similar thing there is that actually with, um, you know, talking specifically about Brugada, um, that um, that is actually affecting um, primarily the heart muscle tissue um, and not the wiring system of the heart. So actually the wiring system is typically um, pretty unaffected. Um, and so there again, it, it wouldn't, uh, uh, I don't think it would uh, really play into it. But theoretically, um, should you be able to target the rest of the heart, you could have the option of uh, trying to deliver either um, drugs or anything that even actually could modify the cells themselves. I think that would be kind of like the absolute holy grail, right? Uh, is if we could then target any cell on the body 
and alter it, um, whether it's replace a gene that you were born with that was, um, that was affected um, or deliver a particular drug. Um, I think that that, again, is kind of like the whole, kind of the holy grail of precision medicine um, that um, people are, a lot of people are interested in. Um, so I think that the future is incredibly exciting, and I think that um, I think it it it, it um, behooves us to think as kind of um, big as possible, and and really try to kind of uh, go after go after all of it because I think it's possible. I think it's just about thinking outside of the box and just trying to keep um, working together and see if we can get it done. Yeah, I mean the muscles. Yeah, we can just target the muscles instead of the conduct cells but I was just thinking you know middle age to older men high risk of heart disease maybe one day they won't have an apple watch they'll just have some you know some vaccine basically that <laughs> you deliver these antibodies and then they in case of a heart attack they it gets like delivered I don't know <laughs> some vaccines I wanted to follow up one quick question. When you were talking about things to do with atrial fibrillation and um, ablation and all that, I was thinking how my father had ablation and it didn't work. So are, were you saying that you might be able to help it work better? Um, so uh, atrial fibrillation, I will say, is a, a bit of a different beast. So we, um, I, you know, atrial fibrillation is incredibly rare in, in pediatrics. It's actually something independently that I, I did a little research on and I have a kind of an interest in. Um, but um, for adults, typically um, it's in um, adults over the age of 60. That's when the incidence uh, uh, of uh, atrial fibrillation really kind of um, escalates. Um, the origin, again, just forever. It's a fast kind of irregular rhythm that happens from the upper chambers of the heart, not the wiring system, but the actual atria, what we call the atrium, uh, the heart muscle tissue in the top. And uh, that is a very classic, Joyce, is um, unfortunately ablations that are done on the adult side, um, they can be incredibly gifted. And for instance, like the, e the adult electrophysiology crew here, so our adult counterparts are outstanding. Um, and yet still, um, there is uh, frequently this issue of recurrence of atrial fibrillation. And so this is like a, a very long standing thing with an AAF. There's a ton of interest, money, and um, uh, research into this topic of how to um, better treat atrial fibrillation because it is the most common arrhythmia in the world. Uh, it affects about 46 million people um, in the world. Um, it's an incredibly huge market. We're talking like many, many, many billions of dollars every year. Um, and so there is a, there are a lot of great minds and have been over the past several decades thinking about this. It's a, it's a very tricky um, rhythm uh, to deal with. And so, um, and, but unfortunately that story is all too common of getting an ablation, needing to go back or get back on meds. Um, and so we have a lot, a lot of uh, work to do yet on atrial fibrillation, for sure. Thank you. Yes, and uh, I mean, I was thinking of, because you mentioned about the, I mean, Prokin-G fibers. So I was just thinking about, we have a variety of the morphological variety there. 
and also as well as that some of in some of the cases we don't know about the i mean mechanism tissue mechanism behind that and i was just wondering why in the right chamber instead of the left chamber directly uh, the right chamber for the ICD? Yes. So because you uh, you mentioned about the bundle of the HIS and we know that the Purkinje fiber and they are mostly towards the left side. I yeah, don't know a great I question. Mean, how you just came it's up. All, it, it literally is is just a, ma a matter of access. So we typically put the devices up in the upper left. Uh, so you like if you know anybody with a, a pacemaker or an ICD, um, in an adult, it's typically placed in the kind of upper left chest. That's where the battery or the generator goes. Um, and But the wires that actually snake into the heart are accessed through a vessel, and the vessels all lead back to the right side of the heart. And so it's, it's very much just like a technical thing of uh, screwing in um, that ventricular lead on the right. There's a kind of a, a tricky way to get over to the left side indirectly uh, through a vein inside the heart. And so... Uh, sometimes that is done, but if you're just going to put a single lead into the heart, it always goes onto the right, um, just because it literally is where the vessels dump into. It just makes the most sense. And, and you can and you towards can to the respiratory, right? And also, I think about the, for example, ectopic beats. It can be more accessible from that side if you want to just find it out. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I know it's uh, really just technical in the end, um, but. Um, but we do pace, and actually in kids also, um, when the devices have to go on the outside of the chest, uh, they're too small to have it the normal way, um, then uh, we very much, uh, and we actually end up usually putting the, the leads on the outside in between the left and right. So really at the apex, uh, kind of just right at the juncture between the two uh, to more closely mimic um, how the electrical kind of wiring happens. Even when they have another kind of congenital floater or such a things, it's still working in that way. I'm assuming. I mean, it's a great question, actually. There, there is. Um, so there's another physician in my in my group, uh, Dr. Henry Chubb, um, who's really outstanding. He's from the UK, and his entire question, or one of his major questions that he seeks to understand, is um, this relatively straightforward question of where do you put the leads uh, in a device on a child with congenital heart disease if they only have one ventricle if they have two but they're they're uh, twisted um, what is the optimal place to put these leads and so he uses um, both advanced imaging like uh, cardiac mris and uh, and cat scans um, uh, as well as um, just actual clinical physiologic data to be able to kind of discern that and so it's an active question in the field uh, so these are all brilliant questions because they're very much sought after. All right, at least from what age exactly we can use it? That's another question. Uh, so sometimes we have children that are born um, with, um, as we heard earlier, um, with arrhythmias, and some are born with complete heart block. And so some of them um, don't need anything, but some of them very much need a pacemaker immediately as soon as they're born. Sometimes we have to deliver the uh, children early to, to be able to put that device in. Um, so it's, you know, it's usually when they're that small, especially if they're premature, um, the size of the device usually plays heavily into it in terms of how many leads or um, wires you can put onto the heart um, and, um, uh, and at what point you can actually put the device in them. Uh, so that's, it's kind of, that's part of the challenge and interest uh, of, of working with the pediatrics. But yeah, you can go very early. Thank you so much. 
Denise, I just wanted to ask you if you have the question, not that you feel like I'm ignoring you here. <laughs> oh, no, I appreciate it. Um, I'm just absorbing all of the information. I didn't have a specific question at this time. Thank you so much, Karina. Yeah, thanks for being in this. Um, Mona, um, I don't know how much time you still have, Will, but if, if um, Mona could ask her question. Of course. Uh, thank you. Uh, hi, everyone. Hi, Katrina. Um, so I was in and out uh, listening. Um, so forgive me if this question was already asked. Um, is this um, helpful in kids who have like long QT syndrome or also in adults? Is this able to help with that? Great question, Mona. Um, this is also, again, a, and so uh, part of my kind of passion also is understanding, better understanding what we call inherited arrhythmias. Uh, so these are arrhythmias that um, you are born with, um, either through inherited from a family member, so a parent, or um, sometimes they can happen what we call de novo. So they can happen spontaneously um, in, a, in a kiddo when they're born. Um, and it's just that you are born with a particular, whether it's Brugada syndrome or long QT syndrome, um, that there is a variation in the DNA sequence that makes up a particular gene. Um, and that uh, predisposes you or, or puts you at risk for having a said, said uh, disorder. And so for long QT, just like Brugada, it actually affects um, not so much the conduction system, but actually the, the heart muscle tissue. So the ventricles primarily. Um, and so, um, so yeah, so this would not, um, because this is the, uh, uh, it's independent of the conduction system. Okay. But this is, uh, this is something that we actively, it's again, a, a passion of mine and something that we, um, we have, we treat many, 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 many patients uh, with uh, a lot of these arrhythmias. And so, Part of my kind of um, role <laughs> and existence, uh, reason to exist, is to try to be able be able to come up with uh, translational solutions, not just for the surgeons and for these kids that are go undergoing heart surgeries, but eventually to come up with solutions uh, for kiddos just like this with long QT, with Brugada, etc. Um, yeah, that sounds really um, awesome. Um, so I have like another follow up question. Um, so these kids that have, uh, you know, congenital defects, um, they might also develop, would they, do they develop any type of reaction to the autoantibodies that you are using to correct this? That's a great question. So the, again, right now, the way that we have it set up, we still haven't gotten into humans yet, um, but the idea is to get there. Um, is we, um, the whole idea is to not have a reaction to this aluminode, the solution that we put in, these antibodies. Um, but it's a great question because, uh, for instance, like the original antibodies that we used, absolutely, if they're, they typically are raised in animals, they're made in like, for instance, a goat or a rabbit. Um, if you injected that into a human, the body would absolutely recognize that as foreign and would go after it. So that would not be a viable option. And so for it's, it's for that reason that we, I was very intent on trying to bring this ultimately eventually to humans that we created our own antibody that was a human version of an antibody. And not only that, but it's a human version of the antibody with a, a big portion of it uh, removed 
Um, and it's that portion that typically triggers an immune response, an autoimmune response. And so the idea is that you're minimizing the chances of the body seeing this as abnormal. And so the goal, uh, we hope, and obviously this has to be tested, is that we can inject this and not have um, any one human react to it as seeing it as something wrong rather than it just seeing it as itself. Um, so we hope um, that uh, the goal here is to be able to inject it safely, that it, it doesn't affect the actual cells that get lit up, so the conduction system. And on top of that, the goal is that we hope that um, we and anticipate that uh, we should not be generating a significant immune reaction against these antibodies. But it's a really good question. Yeah, thank you. I wish you guys lots of success because uh, it's very much needed, this type of research and this type of... <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Shiva, uh, you joined the stage. Did you have a last question? Because I think uh, Will probably wants to start as we can. <laughs> When I entered the room, uh, I was listening to song, so I can't hear anything. Sorry, <laughs> I don't know what are you talking about. Okay, yeah, don't worry. Then uh, listen to the replay. Uh, you, um, you're welcome. We recorded the room, so and a lot of our friends will listen to the replay uh, because there's never time that works for everyone. So uh, oh. you to go ahead and, and listen to the replay um yeah so thank you will uh, for coming here and sharing your amazing research um victoria you unmuted did thank you want you. to yeah, say thanks something thanks for noticing i just wanted to say an extra thank you and that after my experience with my daughter um you know i learned to never take one regular rhythm for granted you never know what kind of things you are taking for granted before you know, until something, you know, kind of goes wrong. I, I, I hate to say wrong, but, you know, something just isn't right. And, and so, mm, your, so your research is just so desperately needed. And, and it's such a comfort to know that you're working on that. Because even though everything is fine now, you know, with us, with my daughter, with her heart, um, you never forget that worry. And it's, and that feeling of helplessness. So, knowing that you're out there working on arrhythmia is is huge so thank you so much well it's my pleasure uh thank you to everyone for inviting me and um and absolutely victoria i mean I, we you know take it and i i mean i can't speak for anybody else but i very much take um my uh, position as a physician and as a researcher um as an absolute privilege and so um yeah, it really, it comes down to what really drives me is what got me in there in the first place is um, really from day one when I was a musician volunteering and uh, playing with those kids uh, at the children's hospital. Like that's that's what drives me every day and that's what uh, gets me, pushes me through hard days in the lab or in, in the hospital. So very much a privilege. Thanks everybody. Yeah, thank you so much for all your work and uh, we wish you all the funding and um, all the luck um, and uh, yeah, thank you for using your energy and brains for helping um, children. Uh, that's very 
Impressive. And congratulations for your work. And maybe one day you'll come back with some updates that you can share. Um, that would be wonderful. Thank you. Of course. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. Okay. Happy weekend, everyone. Happy Friday. And thank you for coming. And uh, we'll have, um, if you like rooms like this, follow the club. We will have um, more speak events next week. Uh, we have Dr. Bayen coming on Monday talking about new nanosensors that visualize dopamine release. And uh, we will have on Tuesday, Dr. El Haik coming. He is going through a lot of uh, population genetics data again, and um, he's reevaluating current bias population genetics and uh, published a really impressive work. Then we have a friend of mine who's the director of the um, Chapalimou Institute Psychiatry in Lisbon, uh, Dr. Oliveira Maya, talking about his research and goal-directed and habitual actions, but also about other projects of his. And um, on Thursday, we'll have Dr. Doboli. He will talk about the neural pathway for a social touch uh, he discovered and how it's kind of reinforced. And on Friday, we'll have Dr. Goshian how he makes um, bioelectricity in living um, photovoltaics. It will be really interesting. Just living photovoltaics is already really interesting. And um, yeah, so um, we'll have another talk on Friday, Dr. Liu, who will talk about ancient Chinese metallurgy that they discovered more complex metals than they thought before and uh, that will be also really interesting and then on saturday we'll have two dr wu's um who will talk about new developments they achieved with making wireless optogenetics and photopharmacology so it will be a very busy week next week and uh, i hope to hear you all back soon and thank you will again um, amazing work and thank you so much. I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Happy weekend. Enjoy.